This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Dr. Norman Fenton, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Great. And it was good to meet you at uh, Andrew Bridgen's gathering in December when he brought together many of those names to speak on excess deaths. And it was great to bump into you there. Um, and people can obviously find you at Prof N. Fenton on uh, on Twitter. And of course, your Substack, where are the numbers.substack.com? Where are the numbers.substack.com? Uh, people can also find and uh, on your Twitter profile, your Don is making sense of math, probability and risk. I think we're going to look a little bit of that and then how statistics uh, are used to manipulate and trick us. And we've seen that in, in full flow mm. over the last four years, COVID tyranny. But maybe before we get into that. I could just ask you, just take a moment. Haven't had you on. I've followed you uh, for a long time online because you produce the data and figures and analyze it. And that's been extremely invaluable over the last couple of years. But maybe take a, a moment and introduce yourself before we jump into the topic. Yeah, okay. So I'm an emeritus professor of risk at Queen Mary University of London. I actually retired at the end of um, December, uh, yeah, December 2022, um, partly because of uh, some, actually the sort of the pressures I was coming under for being a kind of like COVID dissident at that point. That, that I came in for a lot of stick. There were plenty of people who, who outside the university uh, wanted to get rid of me. They didn't like the idea that there was a professor at a, a major university who was challenging the government, nar government narrative on covid you know vaccines lockdowns and all that sort of stuff but um that was part of the reason why i i retired there were some personal reasons but that was um an important reason i wasn't getting a lot of great support from the university either i have to say but yes yeah, so i retired there my, my math my background is i'm a mathematician by training and for the last uh 30 years i guess i've been uh applying probability and various mathematical techniques, Bayesian probability in particular, to problems of uh, sort of critical risk assessment, which included uh, kind of like medical risk assessment. So it was inevitable that when the sort of the, the, the whole COVID thing started, and it was clearly going to be data driven, that that I'd be looking, I and other members of my team would be looking at, at that stuff. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we do. I use uh, maths and probability to to try and um, understand and help people understand different types of critical risks, including medical risks, but not restricted to that. We looked at, you know, we've been, I've been involved in stuff like um, transport risk, risks of all kinds of different critical systems, legal risks, that type of stuff. Okay. Well, um, before we get into that, let, let me just play a, a little video that you put up. And I think it, I had to watch it a couple of times and thought, I think Dr. Fenton's 
trying to pull a swift one on this because I, uh, I've i seen something different. But you titled it, How Easily We Are Fooled. So let me just play this uh, little 90-second video and then uh, we'll jump in from there. So the question here is, which of the squares A or B is lighter? Which seems like a ridiculous question. It's clearly B. But what I'm going to do here is I'm simply using a paint package to cut out square B and place it over square A. So that's me just cutting it out, placing it over. And there you can see they're exactly the same. There's absolutely no trickery involved here. All I did is just do that cut out and paste. And again, similar example with these uh, two different colored dresses, but are they? You can see that part is Probably enough exactly the same. This is an example of what we call confirmation bias. Here's a kind of like really heavily digitized image. What do you see here? Most people can't really see anything at all. But what I'm going to do is reveal what the actual image is. And you can see it's this baseball player. And the thing is, if I now show you back to the original image, it's hard not to see what the real image is. And of course, this is a classical problem of forensic science because you were genuinely uncertain about what the partial image was. But once you've seen the full image, you're absolutely certain about what the partial image is. And finally, there's this illusion of a moving staircase at the San Siro Stadium, but it's simply just people walking in the same direction. Um. Wow, when you see it, you see it. That is that is, that is so true. I think it was Lilani Darding uh, on her post or uh, on her feed. Uh, I saw that coming up. How easily we are fooled. Um, are you sure you're not playing trickery with any of those images? No, no, they're 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 all uh, classic uh, visual illusions. And I always used to start when I was lecturing. I always used to start my um, uh, series of lectures on risk by. Uh, introducing those types of probability illusions because the, uh, the sorry those types of visual illusions because the probability illusions that people succumb to are just as powerful and just as bewildering so i think the one i always follow that with the sort of the first probability illusion is that i show a sequence i say well imagine that you um you toss a coin uh 16 times and you reveal that you've got you get sort of 16 head all 16 heads uh, sorry all 16 are tails actually and then you uh look at another sequence and you've got a kind of like random selection of, of of heads and tails and you ask which is the more likely that you you'd observe and people of course automatically assume it's the sort of the you know the heads tails head they they, they assume that the 16 tails is kind of like impossible but of course Anybody who's done basic probability theory will know that, assuming it's a fair coin, it's you're just as likely to get a sequence of 16 out of 16 uh, tails as you are to get what looks to be like a completely random sequence. So you've got stuff like that that people don't understand. In fact, curiously, uh, the 16 tails, the 16 consecutive tails, is actually more likely because of certain physical uh, features of the difference between heads and a towel on, on a on a coin. But and then I go on to things like sort of the, like the sort of the birthdays problem. It's a classic case. You know, if you've got 23 children in a room, what's the probability 
that at least two of them will have the same birthday. And people sort of think about this and they get, they, they're sort of thinking about themselves. They're thinking about what's the probability that another child in the room has got the same birthday as me? And they'll do things like, well, is it saying like 23 over 365? They'll do things like that. So I think it's sort of quite unlikely. But the answer is actually is that there's better than a 50% chance. And it's because people don't realize that it's not just, it, you're not just thinking about a specific pair of uh, children. It's basically any, there's a lot of combinations of pairs of children. And then when you do the, the maths, and it's not that difficult, the maths. I mean, there's, you know, I've got videos explaining this sort of stuff. You, you, you discover that there's actually a better than 50% chance. And if you go up to, in a class of 30 children, there's actually an over 90% chance that you're going to get at least two with the same birthday. And so these are just, these are sort of classical probability. I call them classical probability illusions. And the use of sort of what I would call probability tricks like that were, of course, very prevalent in pushing, bizarrely, the, the, you know, the COVID narrative. And, uh, you know, I've done uh, videos and simulations and stuff like that showing, for example, how with a very simple you know, this is the classic misclassification of um, recently vaccinated people as unvaccinated. So if you're if you get vaccinated, if you catch COVID, you, you, you become COVID positive within, let's say, 14 days of a vaccine of the COVID vaccination. You're typically classified. Normally you're, you're classified as unvaccinated. Right. But with that simple mass misclassification, if you take a vaccine, which is a, just a placebo, has no impact whatsoever, you will get, once you ramp up a vaccination program, you will get this sort of 90, 95% efficacy simply because of that misclassification, where there's no efficacy at all. At all. Wow. Well, but you, were you not one of the first people the government called on to make sense of their data whenever they started looking at it? No, no, I wasn't, <laughs> because I was always maybe a bit, bit of an outsider, uh, there's, there's maybe, I mean, they, they call on, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of background here because I I did in 2015, I actually uh, presented a BBC documentary called Cli on climate change by numbers. I was a co-presenter mm -hmm. with uh, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter and Professor Hannah Fryer. And interestingly enough, I think that was maybe Hannah Fryer's first um a documentary with BBC, and she went on to like have a very sort of, a sort of really stellar career because you see, sort of, I think she's their main kind of like science documentary presenter now. Um, the reason why that was my first and only <laughs> appearance on the BBC is because I was very I was very skeptical. I didn't like the way that 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 documentary turned out. I didn't like the way it was edited, um, and I made clear afterwards privately i didn't you know, make it public at the time that uh i was very unhappy with some of the things i've been scripted to say because what people don't realize is those documentaries i mean that documentary was just a pure propaganda piece yeah. you know to support the sort of the hysterical climate change narrative and i was very unhappy with some of the things i had to say and in particular there was one there was one uh, statement which I was very uncomfortable with, and I went back to the. They had these um, consultants because I'm not a climate. I'm not a climate scientist. They chose us because we were supposedly independent mathematicians who hadn't been 
you know involved in sort of the climate debate we you know and, and stuff like that we we were just supposed to be looking at the the kind of models and the data and presenting what they were saying so they had their own climate experts um who were actually doing the scripting of this stuff and i, I challenged one of them I, I said to one of them you know are you sure this is i, I don't i don't feel comfortable about you know, saying this are you sure it's okay said, yeah 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 it's absolutely fine it's absolutely fine and after the program went out a colleague pointed out to me you know you realize that that was not only was that wrong what you said there but um you know the person who that expert who told you basically to say it himself in his own recent work is is clearly showing that it's not it's not true you know so i got on the phone to this uh person afterwards and said well you know you you assured me that this was okay this was all Guy Koshin, his response was basically, "We have to lie for the greater good." And I kind of like this was this is basically a, a lot of what goes on in sort of climate science, and I think it also has gone on in you know in the science of COVID as well. It's these people are completely convinced; they're so convinced that they are right and that there's a moral. They feel they have a kind of like a moral duty to protect us, whether it's from you know climate change or dangers of covid that, that they are prepared to just sort of lie for the greater good and the, the, the evidence isn't there but it's just like you know it, it, it's this is it's they feel that this is what they have to do in order to convince people well i i guess looking at the covid side uh, you've talked about how officials manipulated data to exaggerate uh the crisis but even prior to that i guess at the beginning there wasn't really the data and uh, it was more the 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 data of fear of numbers or of images and that was there to replace any data and the government made decisions on that so i i'm kind of seeing assuming then that if the data comes out and it conflicts with that then you need to work on the data to make sure it doesn't conflict or else you're going to look very foolish because the measures have taken initially have not been based on anything. Yeah, but they didn't, they did, they, they, they doubled down on the bad data. This is the thing. I mean, I mean, sorry, I didn't, you asked me, you know, why did did they uh, turn to me to look at the original data? And and I guess the, the spiel I was given about the BBC thing was that I was already kind of like fingered as, as a maverick in this kind of like risk. So they, in, in the, uh, uh, sort of the risk profession, as it were, mm-hmm. professional risk experts. So, uh, the government, um, didn't call on me. I did, I did present material to the government, to, uh, uh, along with colleagues, but they basically ignored everything that we said. I mean, very early on, we were, you know, we were, we were one of the first to point out, actually we managed to get in early on, we did manage to get a two or three papers published in peer-reviewed journals because it wasn't seriously challenging the narrative then. We were simply pointing out that the um, infection fatality rates, i.e. how deadly they were claiming COVID to be, were exaggerated based on the publicly available data at the time. And what we were pointing out was consistent with what people like uh, John Ionidis and Stanford were also pointing out. And that was actually... um, People were talking about it then, but the fear, but there was still this fear that, okay, it might, you know, they were still thinking it's still pretty deadly, you know, that that even if it's only like at the time we were saying that once 
for elderly people who got it, the you know, probability of dying was, you know, still under, it was still under 1% or whatever. Um, but they were still hyping up that, you know, we don't know what's coming, it's going to get worse, all that, that type of thing. So it, it didn't really challenge it. They only really, I only really became completely ostracized and, and, you know, they started calling for my head and wanting me to be sacked and all that sort of stuff came with the mass testing because this was the biggest scam of all, because we knew early on that if you mass test a bunch of largely asymptomatic people, which is what happened in when they eased the first lockdown, right? So the first lockdown it started to ease around about um, late summer, early autumn of, of 2020, because they, they, they then wanted to get people back to school and back to work and stuff like that. And so what they did was they started mass testing people who were asymptomatic, people who didn't have symptoms. Previously, in the early days, it was only people who actually had symptoms were being tested. And amongst those, because of that, the stupid PCR test, it was kind of like showing, yeah, most of these people got symptoms, it will, they'll, they'll come up positive on the on a PCR test. So you had these high uh, case rates for given that amount of testing. But what it didn't realise is that the asymptomatics, even though the so-called false probability rate was seen to be quite low, I, the probability that a person who you know didn't have the virus or test positive is quite low. Actually, at a time when you've got not that many people infected and you're testing a whole load of asymptomatics, you will get a whole load of new fake false case numbers. Most of the people at that point, most of the asymptomatics who were testing positive didn't have any virus and didn't go on to get symptoms or, or whatever. But you were getting the case numbers were being massively driven up. And this was all part of it's what seemed to me to be a plan to get the necessary fear instilled in preparation for the vaccine rollout, because we didn't have the vaccine then. People were going back to work, right? How were they then going to introduce the, you know, a vaccine rollout without making people realise that, hang on a sec, it's really bad. The case numbers, are, you know, there's these massive case numbers going into the early autumn and winter of 2020-21. Um, we've got to drive these case numbers up in order to make people feel they have to get the vaccine as the only way out of it. And so you had the, before the vaccine, those, that massive increase in case numbers because of the mass uh, asymptomatic testing program. That was enough to get to the second lockdown, remember, in the early part of the winter of 2020. And then, hey, presto, the only way out of the lockdown is the vaccine at that point. Um, it really does seem like a case of lies, damn lies and statistics in that you can remove different fields, different parts of the data, and therefore move it towards another way and simply uh, not recording uh, people as vaccinated if it hadn't been whatever 14 days or 21 days after having a jab then you could immediately dismiss that um, and I mean that is a to me a perfect example of how you take the data and choose which subsets yep. to use and then what message you want to put out from it. Yeah and absolutely and look at the I mean it's even worse with the deaths remember you've got that um, officially anybody who died within 28 days of a positive PCR test, no matter what reason, was classified as a COVID death. Okay, so of course you'd be run over um, and, you know, uh, sort of 
27 days after having to having to have tested positive for PCR test, die in hospital the next day. You're classified as a COVID hospitalization and a COVID death, of course. So you've got that was a you know got that massive manipulation. And of course, you know we know that you know well, we knew at the time that most of the uh, people who were even who were classified as, as, as die of COVID who weren't these sort of accidental deaths. We know that it was their comorbidities that were actually killing them rather than rather than any sort of novel virus. I mean, I'm not one of these that says that there wasn't any novel virus, right? I mean, there, you, you know, you always get these novel coronaviruses all the time, but it was no more what we're convinced is that there was no pandemic there and it wasn't it wasn't as deadly. You know, it was it was just like any other, you know, a, a bad flu season. Now, interesting enough, um, it's, I mean, this is not kind of like not a massive revelation, but finally, after not having stuff published for a long, you know, they, they basically were censoring all of my, all of our research on this. So after the initial couple of papers in the early spring of 2020, we didn't get any of this, of our papers, which were challenging the narrative published. But funnily enough, just in the last couple of days, this is a bit of an advert, we have, uh, I am a co-author on a paper which has been published in the, Journal of Clinical Medicine, uh, which has showed that basically the um, the lot none of the none of the government interventions, whether it was the lockdowns, the masking, or the vaccines, had any impact whatsoever on the spread of COVID on the, on the, on their their case numbers and death numbers. Right? It was just seasonality. It was just the coronavirus seasonality, which was which was which was impacting those things. So that's um, yeah. So that that that's out now. That that paper's getting a little bit of attention. Um, it was very difficult, of course, to get that paper uh, published, and we had to sort of um, tone down a lot of the conclusions. But it's you know so there's finally you know we're getting you know the cracks are showing that now people are you know talking more about the fact that was there really a, ever a pandemic here? You know why did we ever do any of these things? I mean. We knew at the time, I was, you know, I was at the time, of course, calling all these things out as crazy, and I was, I was called crazy for doing so. But now, finally, at least we can talk about these things. But you know, with hindsight, all of them, the statistical manipulations that they were, you know, they were pulling off were, were quite, you know, quite ridiculous. I think it's it's it seems to be too late for truth. Uh, you've talked about information coming out, um, and I know one of your uh, recent posts uh it was in i think the sun talking about uh, a new wave and uh, maybe bigger than before and of course we will have to wear masks uh, to combat this and you're kind of scratching your head thinking have you not read the information that's come out it, it seems to be very difficult to change that mindset in people that they've decided through fear or trusting government or pressure and family or fear of losing to whatever reason um that whatever new evidence comes out they've already decided and there's a massive difficulty in actually changing that public perception isn't there there really is i mean there's that cognitive dissonance here part of it's because so many people did get vaccinated and they're reluctant and a lot of people got their children vaccinated or got their parents vaccinated and stuff like this, even if those people might not have uh, been inclined to do so. But they, you know, the, the fear, the whole fear tactic work there, you know, we have to do this to protect our, our loved ones, all that type of thing. And I think a lot of those people 
are maybe aware of loved ones who have uh, had serious adverse reactions from the vaccine, maybe people who've died and, uh, and, and stuff like that. But because they themselves, you know, took the vaccine and, and got others to do it, they, the cognitive distance is so great that they cannot bring themselves to believe that, that they were genuinely doing themselves and their loved one, loved ones harmed, loved, loved ones harmed. And so you've got that cognitive distance that they're not able to, come out openly and accept you know what the reality of the situation is and similarly with the and that you know because they bought in also to the to, you know to the lockdowns and the masking similarly for that that's that's it, it is a it's a cognitive distance thing but also you've got the fact that when I, I mean i was saying that there's little chinks of light now in the sort of mainstream media getting through that this thing you know was there was never a sort of a major pandemic but in the main they are still pushing the narrative. I mean, as you said, I put out that tweet day about the article in the Sun yesterday, where they're pushing it like, "Oh my God, you know, it's going to be worse than ever." Get back to masking, all that sort of stuff. So they're still sort of pushing that. They're still pushing the, you know, the, I mean, people aren't people are the mean mainstream media pushing, still pushing the boost and stuff like that. Although people aren't aren't actually buying it. People people know deep down that there's no point in this. So you know, I don't know. Do you know many people who are actually getting the booster? People no, I, 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 I think anyone who might got the booster isn't really talking to me anymore anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that. But I actually think even people who were absolutely, you know, their friends and colleagues, the family members who were calling me, you know, sort of, sort of the worst possible things for telling them at the beginning not to get vaccinated, those people are saying, actually, you're right, I'm not, I'm not bothering with this anymore. It's, you know. A, we don't think it is safe. We, we're not convinced it is safe, and and also, you know, what's the point? You know, COVID is just like a bad cold. It's face quite funny that the Sun article is, is that the came out yesterday. It's quite funny because it actually was talking about the symptoms of this new, you know, this new strain that they're talking about. You know, and it's and uh, the only main symptoms seems to be a runny nose. They're even saying that all the old, <laughs> the worst symptoms, things like the loss of taste and smell, actually aren't there anymore. It's just it's a runny nose basically, and you might get a headache. Yeah, it, it does like a cough as well, but not such not so bad as the previous coughs. Yeah, no, it it does seem to be that. <laughs> um, I was actually intrigued that meeting that Andrew Bridgen had in December. You had uh, Doctor, you had Doctor Ryan Cole, Doctor Pierre Corey, you had Steve Kirsch, uh, Doctor Rob Malone, Angus Daglish. You had many uh, round there, and I was intrigued twice. Uh, that you weren't on necessarily on that talk table speaking, but twice it was all oh, we have. We have we have Dr. Norman Fenton here. Maybe you could add to this. And obviously, during the the exposing, I guess, the lies and the tyranny, that's taken a lot of different individuals from different aspects of society working together. Um, but your role has been quite key in looking at the information because the government were able to bamboozle us with figures with numbers um and tell us and therefore it was just accepted um but you're able to go deeper so that is a intriguing i guess responsibility weren't expecting four years ago yeah no it wasn't um but it's interesting people have said you know why you know why wasn't um why wasn't i asked to be on that that panel i mean i well i, I don't know i'm not sure if i would have been because um I think the idea was that 
there seems to have been certain people who had been promoted to be the sort of the prominent uh, spokespeople for the um, the anti-official narrative. And a lot of those are those sort of, the, you know, you've got those American um, scientists that you mentioned there. Um, and you've got in the UK, there have been people like Asim Malhotra and people like that. Well, what's, what's interesting is that none of those people, um, actually none of them were speaking up speaking out against the um exaggerated data or anything like that from the beginning in fact most of those people even as late as months into the vaccine program were still actually believe it or not promoting the vaccine yeah so even people like you know asim mahotron is i mean you know and no asim well and you know great admirer of his um but on his own admission he was promoting you know the vaccine in the spring of 2000 and as late as the spring of 2021 um robert malone of all people who you know um had a role in in um developing inventing the mrna uh platform was double vaccinated with with the mrna vaccine himself um uh, steve kershaw um and you've got people, yeah all, all of those people they were not they were not challenging the narrative at, at the beginning and the people who were um i'm not by no by no means i was by no means the most prominent here but um others who were have not been allowed you know at any time during these four years to really become the kind of like the the, the voice of the, the you know of the the pandemic story and and certainly we've never been I mean, going back to your original thing, it was never, never been asked by any uh, um, official, you know, government body or anything like that to have any input or comment on any of this stuff. I wasn't, you know, you know, it's only stuff that we've done. I mean, I'm part of the heart group. You know, I play a minor role in the heart group. So the heart group has um, attempted to sort of force its views on uh, the official bodies and the government ministers. But in general, we've we've just been sort of chirping away in the background. I've been exposing, you know, problems with you know the mRNA and the Office for National Statistics. In some cases, we've been we forced them to to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. We've had a little bit of impact there, but never, you know, it, it's it's always been very, you know, a, a very reluctant. Um, they've been very reluctant to have us appear in any kind of formal capacity and have any real impact on the narrative yeah no it it's been extremely curious i agree looking at how media and campaigns throw out individuals that you maybe don't haven't necessarily come across don't necessarily fit that um but then one way is you say well we'll just go with it and i mean obviously you've been on with mark stein and mark stein has suffered greatly um from having the jab um, and I guess those stories, it's sad, very sad personally, but it's important collectively to have those stories to point out how it has failed people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about Mark Stein because, of course, tying into this thing about the mainstream media, I mean, he was, of course, had this um, for a year. He did have um, his one-hour primetime slot on GB News. Yeah. And um, he... And although you, I don't know whether you call that mainstream media, but this is television. There's a big difference from the, you know, the the masses out there. The, the, the sort of the, you know, the ordinary people need to be 
need to see stuff on television before they can really kind of like take it in. So, you know, there's people think that Twitter and Substack and all that have an impact, but they don't on the main part of the population. People are completely oblivious to, mm. you know, to any of that stuff. It has to be at least on the television, right? And at least GB News was a TV. People could tune in without having to go to the internet to see it, right? And, you know, Mark had that show and it was a brilliant show. Yeah. Um, and of course, he was the one, it was the one place where he spoke about these things. He spoke about, you know, the manipulated government statistics and he, um, which were, you know, basically distorting the whole narrative, the sort of thing that, you know, we were talking about. And of course he spoke about the COVID, the vaccine harms. And that was critical. And he was the only person doing that on television. And of course, what happens to him? Ofcom come in and um and he's and he's booted off and he's kicked, he's kicked off of gv news i mean and it, you know at the time when he actually had the heart attack as well so it, it couldn't have come at a worse time for him but that shows you the extent you know to which it's still very very difficult to get this this message out you know we we are still not really getting it out no 100% uh, and part of that is a kind of you were asked at that meeting uh, to help supply data. Well, first of all, you were asked, would you go with the COVID inquiry? And Andrew Bridget said, what would be the point? <laughs> Which I, I, I do get, and I, I probably agree with that mm. understanding because it's not there to expose wrongdoings to the government. It's there to tick the box mm. and make sure they can continue this in another time. But yeah. it's actually, I think it was David Davis asked about uh, some of the data, and you've written a... Yeah piece on this um, entitled the data we need from the ONS to prove the COVID vaccines are safe yeah. and effective. Do you want to maybe talk uh, a little bit about that? Because there does seem to be many gaps and the UK seemingly mm. has better data than many other countries, although we in the UK maybe are frustrated the lack of data. But I think often people look at, at the UK, I think often Israel for data that isn't available in other countries. But tell us a little bit more about that piece uh, that you've written about what data we need. Yeah, it came about, the question came about because of the New Zealand data, right, which um, was discussed at the meeting. Um, now, um, the point is that there was this release, this sort of release of, you know, secret um data from, uh, you know, which was basically represented a very substantial proportion of the New Zealand population. And what it had was for each individual there, it had things like um, obviously their um, age and if they died, the date of death. But it also had the exact dates of uh, when they got each uh, dose of a vaccination and, and stuff like that. And therefore you were able, in theory, to get a picture of whether people uh, who were vaccinated, because you had both the, um, I think, it, yeah, it had, ah, um, oh, no, 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 sorry, I beg your pardon, that only had the vax, that was only restricted to vaccinated people, right? But you could, in theory, from that, um, uh, learn about whether increasing the number of uh, doses that you took was increasing the your likelihood of a severe adverse reaction or death and stuff like that so you could infer some significant things about the safety of the vaccine from that now i think it was as i've gone on the record of saying i, I kind of liked disagreed to a certain extent with steve kirsch on this because he thought it was a game changer and it was this was you know really the uh, 
you know, this was the, the, the real reveal on uh, on the, the vaccine safety. I think it gave us some indication of uh, increased um, probability of death with the number of doses you took, but it wasn't it wasn't a massive impact, right? But it was the date. It was the it was the sort of the quality and the detail of the data was relevant. And and what I was saying was that what David Davis asked was, well, if you what kind of, would is that the sort of data that you'd need to, to really answer all the questions you want to answer about the effectiveness and safety of the vaccine? And I said, well, I'll put together the, you know, a, a list of the data you need. And it, in, it did include things like we would need to have for each individual for whom there was a record of any sort, uh, a medical record of any sort. We would want to know things like if they had a vaccine, then the date of each vaccine. And we would want to know also information about their comorbidities. So. Um, there's a list of all these things. And I, and I said, if you had all of these, if you had all of this detailed information for um, at least most of the population of the UK, then all of the questions about, about uh, the deadliness of, of COVID, uh, you know, the safety and efficacy of vaccines, all of that, all of those would be resolved once and for all. There wouldn't be any doubt about it. Right. And interestingly enough, I mean, I actually, I haven't heard back from, you know, I, I I haven't heard back from David David because the idea was that he was going to then send that on to the Office for National Statistics. Now, I've been in contact. I mean, I know the people who are supposedly responsible for that data at the Office of National Statistics. I've been in contact with them and they've only they've always been resistant. They'll give reasons why they can't provide that data. It's not in one place because it's not just the ONS has this data. There's like the National Immunity. NIMS, the National Immune Immunology Management System, has their own de database, but it should be easily within the uh, capability of the Office for National Statistics to collate that data into a single database. And I believe they, it's interesting because I think that they have it, they have the data and have, we believe they have provided it. Certainly other national governments who claim not to have any publicly data, publicly available data like this to, that, that can be inspected have provided to the pharmaceutical com pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer in order for the for the for their trials they did provide they did provide this kind of detailed data so it is it is out there um, but it seems that they're determined that we're never going to see it and therefore we are never going to be able to prove and because this is something where you could use it to actually prove the answers to the questions about the safety and efficacy, for example, of the vaccines. Uh, I think I've learned from working uh, for Lord Pearson in Parliament for well over 10 years that um, if the government don't want to answer a question, they won't answer it. And you yeah. can ask half a dozen times. Uh, there's a reason why this information is hidden away. There's a reason why the so-called COVID inquiry has not brought this information out. It's that it's not supposed to be there for public consumption um and i guess the the former companies have also a role to play uh, because it could bring up a lot of issues on liability and, and false information being put out there yeah i i think that um we are not going to have this stuff in the public domain for another 20 years i mean maybe in 20 years time there will be real inquiries into why they unleashed this um completely useless let's, let's forget about saying completely useless because it doesn't stop not only does it not stop 
uh, infection transmission, which is widely accepted now. All this nonsense about it stopping hospitalization death from COVID is also complete nonsense. Of course, we've, I mean, I didn't mention that because that's a lot of the stuff we've done. Again, there was lots of statistical manipulation and outright lies which went into that narrative, which incredibly a lot of people still believe. So you still get people like on our side of the argument who know most of the other stuff about, you know, about the pandemic, which was, you know, from the government, which is a lie, still believe that, you know, that the vaccines somehow do you know, minimise the, the chances of you being hospitalised and, and and dying from COVID. And, and that's complete nonsense, right? So it's completely useless. The, the vaccines are completely useless. They may also be pretty dangerous. I mean, there is the evidence that, that they, you know, I believe they are dangerous. I don't believe that it's a mass deep, you know, depopulation agenda, as others are claiming. I don't think we've got the evidence. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of people talking about Dennis Rancourt's report on the 17 million deaths uh, worldwide from the vaccine. I don't believe, I, I, I'm sceptical of those claims. I think that they might be exaggerated, but certainly the vaccines aren't safe. They've certainly um, uh, been an enormous number of severe adverse reactions from them. I be believe there have been uh, a lot of, I mean, the thing about death, I mean, we're all going to die, this whole thing about <laughs> We're all going to die at, uh, at some point. The question is, how much sooner are people who are vaccinated going to die <clears throat> than those who are not vaccinated? And of course, there's an enormous amount of variability. We know that <clears throat> there was massive variability in the <clears throat> in the doses. Sorry, I've got a glass of water here. Just... No, because I, I actually was there in Bucharest listening to <laughs> listen to Dennis Rancor. And I mean I can take the 70 million. I just don't take the 95% of the world going to die in five years. Um yeah. and and you kind of sit and I don't have the data that may be true, may not, but I simply don't have the data and haven't seen anything that I can only go with what I've seen. And the yeah. danger is you make hyperbolic statements in this exactly, exactly. That I mean, discredit you. The thing about, again, the, the 17 million, I mean, it could well be true. But again, it's I believe what we what what we saw actually from the uh, uh, even from the UK data, not definitively because because of the corruption, the way in the misclassification. But from what we could infer as best as possible is that I believe a lot of elderly people died a bit sooner than they would have otherwise died as a result of the vaccine. OK, mm. so. Whether that was, you know, whether that was days, weeks, months, or years, of course, is is not clear. Um, and so, you know, what does that, you know, what does that really mean? You know, can we, you know, so if it turned out that, you know, seventeen million people had died but had died a week earlier, you know, is that how much of a of a big deal of that is, is that? I don't know. I mean, so those are those are the questions that we still don't know the answers to, right? Personally. Personally, I do know of um, uh, younger people who I believe got the sort of the turbo cancers. You know, people who've been in remission from cancer did suddenly get the turbo cancer after a booster, for example, stuff like that. Of course, we don't know definitively cause and effect, but there anecdotally there does seem to be there does seem to be evidence that there's certainly plenty of real evidence about increased. Um, number of dis disabilities 
many of which are associated with known uh, side effects from these vaccines. And we certainly have got the increase in cancers and the um, cardiac conditions, which again are known to be uh, associated with uh, those are particular side effects known to be associated with these vaccines. So there is there is mounting evidence. It's just the it's just the the, the figures that I'm I'm uncomfortable about quoting. And I did do I did do an analysis based on the uh, UK yellow card system, taking account of data that we know about underreporting and also about the um so we took account of both how, how much is underreported and yeah and also what proportion of people uh reporting to the yellow card are kind of like not serious kind of like not serious reports and stuff like that and i did do an estimate based on that and i think at the time uh last so this was a bit about last september i'd reckon at that point there could be as many as fifteen thousand deaths in the uk kind of like directly due to the vaccine but again that doesn't tell you how many of those deaths were simply might have been just a few weeks or months sooner than those people would have died otherwise oh completely well um i mean it's a huge area and i'd love to even get onto a conversation on the stat side and the data side on on climate change we, we will not get into that because that'll be a whole program myself dr norm fenton it is wonderful to have you on i said followed um you putting out the data on twitter for years so thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts yeah thanks a lot for having me and people can also find you on substack where are the numbers dot substack.com uh for those of you using substack make sure and sign up to that if you like what we do sign up to our mailing list donate share and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org Thank you for listening.